because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, today you might be able to see the top of my shirt. Let's see. I'm wearing the I Love Fossil Fuel shirt, and that is my shirt for being a champion of fossil fuels in uh, controversial environments. This is what I wore in the middle of New York City, standing up to the People's Climate March. And I'm wearing it today in honor of our guest, who is the latest champion of fossil fuels, specifically oil and gas, uh, Adam Anderson. I've been talking about him a lot in my newsletter lately. He's the CEO of Innovex Downhole Solutions. He wrote what I thought was a great public letter to the North Face that happily has gotten a lot of attention. So I thought I would bring on Adam and hear the story behind it and, and see what we can learn from it. So Adam Anderson, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. All right. So I want to go um, back in time. Let's just start off with how did you become interested in the oil and gas industry? Uh, I guess in some ways I was born into it. I'm a fifth generation oil and gas guy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So grew up in Houston, Texas, and my dad and uh, was in the business and um, went to school in Colorado, Colorado School of Mines. And when I left, I said, I have, the one thing I'm not going to do is get into oil and gas business. But, um, you know, these things, I ended up getting a petroleum engineering degree and then uh, came into the business. Well, you way. went to mines. It's kind yes. of a, it's, it's one. <laughs> yeah. There aren't that many different things people do there. No, no, you can kind of go, it's something to do with, uh, yeah, oil and gas or mining or minerals or something like that. So yeah, you're kind of drawn into it that way, I guess. So, okay. So you have, you have that background, but you know, unfortunately most people with that background aren't publicly championing the industry and, and often they can't, often it's a, I think a handicap actually for people who grow up in the industry. Like it's hard to, it can be hard to champion it because sometimes you're in an environment where people like people agree with you. And so they think it's good. And then you hear about all these people outside who think that you're evil and that can be hard to explain. Whereas my experience was I was in the environment where everyone thought it was evil. So once I decided it was good, like I already had what I needed to know uh, to explain it uh, to others. But let's, so let's, uh, let's move forward. How did you become interested in explaining the virtue of what you're doing to other people? Because clearly by the time you wrote this North Face thing, you had thought about these issues a lot and you had developed a good ability to articulate them. Well, I think the first thing I have to give credit where credit's due, I think a lot of what I I wrote in that note is actually a, uh, a very, very shortened version of, of your book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. So I think I, th these are topics that I've been, let's say, was, were very real to me for the 20 years I've been in the business. I, I have thought that, hey, what we do is good for people. And um, I, I have a shirt, it doesn't say I love fossil fuels, but it says I love, uh, everybody loves a petroleum engineer. Um, it's just something I think that I knew in my heart and mind, it was something that was good for people in a way, you know, many, most industries have virtue. Um, but I think ours is somewhat unique. Um, but I was maybe cognizant of the fact that most folks thought that the industry and what they do is valuable. Uh, but I was actually, um, I guess two things happened somewhat. Well, a number of things happened simultaneously, but, uh, one is, uh, I was actually talking to uh, a friend of mine from work who I, have a, I have a lot of time for it. somebody that I, I find to be very, um, very intelligent, very capable uh, individual. And he was actually asking me, hey, Adam, what do you do to kind of find um, meaning in your life? And so I, you know, I have my family and then I have my work. And I was 
the two things that I concentrate on and I, I try to do well. We fail at both uh, at from time to time, but in general, those are the ways that I think that I create value for the world. And I think the idea that what we do is at work is uh, good for the world was somewhat, I want to say like this individual had never thought about it that way, but I definitely think uh, that's not how they thought about it regularly. And kind of around the same time, I'd actually read your book and it, it, it helped to really um, distill a lot of the, the thoughts and the ideas that I had had, but in a way that was much more comprehensive in a way that had been far better researched than anything I had done previously, that I said, hey, yeah, this really uh, makes a lot of sense to me and helps to bring a lot of order to my thinking around ways that I thought that it was good, the ways that I thought that what we did was uniquely good and that there was not, not really a lot of other ways to uh, enable human flourishing out with uh, the oil and gas industry. Yeah, I think the uniquely good is a really important thing. And it's something sometimes people in oil and gas and fossil fuels more broadly shy away from. They, they like to say, oh, like we produce energy and wind produces energy and sun produces it. But then people are like, well, why should we use yours if it's just the same as everything else? Uh, versus, oh, wait, no, this has certain attributes that are really, really hard to replicate. Like, why do we only use oil for planes? Like, there's something really special about oil. Not that we'll always use it till the end of time, but like, you got to respect that achievement before you can substitute for that achievement. You can't just deny that there's this amazing thing. So I think that's one thing that's distinctive about your letter is it is really focusing on the unique benefits, not just, oh, oil and gas happen to do this, but they mm -hmm. do it... Um, for a reason. I'm curious, who, how did you learn about the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels? Uh, I think actually I, I listened to you, you were on a podcast that I heard, which is what got me, um, I think it was a, was it David, David Ramsden podcast? I think I heard you on, but I heard you somewhere in one of the, the podcasts. Well, that was, I mean, I did that one like six months ago. Was it that recent? Yeah, it was about, it was that recently. Oh, was that recent? Oh, oh, yeah. I thought, because the book's been, been out been, for a while. So I figured it was it a while. Been, yeah. No, it's been relatively recent. And in fact, when I, because to the point that when I saw it and read it, I thought, wow, I don't know why more, more um, uh, oil and gas people and leaders don't talk about these topics. Um, and it's certainly, again, something that I had thought about for a while, but again, didn't really distill down um, into a message until recently was the fact that over the course of my career, the, the merits of the business within the business haven't been talked about very much, if that makes sense. Like I think uh, over the last 20 years, you have seen the likes of a lot of the super majors, for example, talk about the fact that our industry is a necessary evil and they're going to do what they can to move away from fossil fuels towards wind or solar or these other kind of um, power supplies. And that just strikes me as very peculiar that our industry, um, I, again, I think somewhat uniquely, this industry has this view of itself that it's not necessary or it's a necessary evil that over time the world needs to move away from without celebrating the greatness of our industry. Ultimately, I'm a free market guy. And I think that, hey, if there's something better, lower cost, uh, more reliable, uh, better in all dimensions, that ultimately we should embrace that and we should take that on. But until that day, we should um, we should celebrate what we do. And I think the industry does a pretty poor job of that, surprisingly so. Well, it's good to, you know, one of the most common refrains I hear from the industry, from people in the industry is, oh, we do such a bad job of talking about ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but usually the people complaining about that don't do anything about it, but you get credibility because you actually did um, something. And uh, before, one more thing before we get to the North Face in particular, uh, just tell us a little bit about the history of your company, you know, when it got started and, and how it's grown and how, where it is today. 
Yeah, um, sure. So, so Innovex is a business, we design, manufacture, and sell a pretty broad array of what I like to call well-centric products. So things that are used in the drilling, completion, and production phases of wells. Uh, we started, the company has its roots, the oldest parts of the company are more than 20 years old, but the company in its current form was created about four years ago. Uh, we're owned by a private equity group called Intervale Capital, which focuses on, on industrial businesses, oil field services in particular. And about four years ago, um, they came with the idea of creating a larger downward pool platform. So we, we merged three different businesses um, together four years ago to create InnoVex. And we have grown over the last four years to become uh, the largest uh, independent, not, not publicly traded um, downhole tool business. Uh, we compete with the likes of maybe Schlumberger's and Halliburton's and Baker Hughes's of the world. And then we also compete with a pretty broad array of uh, kind of smaller independent operators here in the U.S. And how many people work there? Uh, about 400 folks. Okay. We're so most that... U.S. focused. We have about 150 in Houston, about uh, a little over 200 around other, you know, all the major shale basins in the U.S. And then we have a small operating footprint in Saudi Arabia and in Oman. So speaking of 400 people at your company, the way I came to know about you is you placed an order for 400 jackets from uh, the North Face. And just as context for this, I've heard executives tell me for years that Patagonia in particular would not fulfill orders for them. And this was always just so annoying because their products are made from oil and gas. I and mean, of course the whole supply chain is, is there. By the way, as an amusing thing, in one of the stories covering you, it's semi-amusing, semi-annoying. I don't know if you saw the Snopes story about yes, you. Did I you only, yes. Yeah, because that one, I mean, Snopes is, is, they're good on a bunch of things, but they seem to have become more political over the years. And one piece of evidence is they said something to the effect of basically the North Face acknowledges that they used to use hydrocarbons in their product. And I'm like, do you understand anything about how the world works? If you think that any company is not using hydrocarbons and they're like, oh, we use castor oil for something. And it just showed me, wow, Snopes really has no idea uh, how the modern <laughs> world work. So you, so this is something again, where other people had complained about it, but I'd never seen anyone do anything about it. So what prompted you to, so you got, tell, let's tell us the story starting with them rejecting your order and then what you did. Yeah. So it, um, it's pretty straightforward as we had, we had uh, tried to play 400 jackets and, 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 you know, fairness to North Face is the wrong way to say, it, but we didn't, you don't actually call North Face up. You call up somebody who does the embroidery work and they buy the jackets from North and in that process, they have to get approval from the North Face for who they're, you know, what they're embroidering on the jackets. And so the North Face says, in my opinion, is they're right. They said, hey, we don't want to co-brand with oil and gas. But they don't, they don't put that out there publicly. They reference a statement that says they don't want to co-brand with things like alcohol, tobacco, porn. They don't explicitly put oil and gas on that list in the public, but that's, they put it in the same sphere of things they don't want to be co-branded with. And I, I was like you, I, I was aware of other businesses like Patagonia, I was aware had this stance. I honestly didn't know North Face had this stance and in fact have a couple of North Face items in my closet and generally have a positive view on their brand. So I was somewhat shocked by this um, and it kind of ha happened to, to align well from a timing standpoint with this topic I've been talking on more internally within our organization about how important oil and gas is and our industry is to the world. Uh, so when they, they came out with that um, decree, I thought it was a good opportunity to write a message that I expected honestly to be read by. Maybe most of my employees would be guilted into reading the letter, but I didn't honestly expect that 
um, it would get very broad traction. Uh, but yeah, effectively, I wrote the letter, articulated my views on um, the virtue signaling and the craziness of their of their position, given how important hydrocarbons is to that business in particular that could not exist without hydrocarbons in any way. And um, the reception from it has been uh, remarkable relative to my initial expectations. Well, so tell us about that. How did the, how did the reception come in? Like, what what was the progression of it? Uh, so yeah, so initially when I posted, I had a number of I posted on LinkedIn, which is not probably the uh, most uh, the, the website people post where they want to make stuff go viral, so to speak. Um, but I mostly folks that I have a connection with initially started liking it, and then I think somewhere in, in Midland, which I obviously have a, a lot of connections in Midland, forwarded it onto the local news station there. One of those news stations interviewed me, and they posted it to their Facebook side, and then from there is where it really caught traction. And I think in particular. Uh, the message that I was trying to make of how important oil and gas is to human life um, resonates in Midland, Texas, naturally. Uh, I, I was shocked by over the course of a couple of days from when that uh, first news story went out with the, the Odessa uh, TV station, like North Face was inundated with thousands of posts on their North on their Facebook page, for example, with um, people who were opposed to their views. Uh, not that they, I think, for them, they, they just, I think, um, balance out the good, probably from their perspective that you have some oil and gas people won't be happy with this, but on balance, most folks who are probably not very well informed on these issues uh, would naturally kind of gravitate towards the North Face side that gas is bad and not recognize the inconsistency of that view with uh, reality. What was the most surprising reaction you got? Uh, I, I think... The most surprisingly is just the, I, mean, I think if 99.9% of the reactions I got were positive, in some way, I would guess I was hoping uh, that North Face or somebody who was opposed to this view would come out and say something about it and we could actually start a dialogue with that. But it didn't gain any traction with any kind of news source or individuals who were particularly supportive of this view. I think most folks um, with, with the view that hydrocarbons are bad simply either did not see it or just chose, you know, choose not to engage on this topic. Because I felt I've not had any. I guess what was surprising to me is not a single person um, had any kind of response to the merits of what was in my letter. Unfortunately, I can relate to that. I mean, one thing with <laughs> the moral case for fossil fuels that was surprising and is still surprising is how few people responded to it. I mean, so this yeah. is a this is not an obscure book. I mean, this hit a New York Times bestseller list, sold something like eighty thousand copies it's cited by quite a few people. Um, but, you know, there was one article years ago in like the Energy Law Journal, and even that was three years, maybe three years after the book came out, like one kind of mainstream person wrote a response to it. And then I answered that one, but there weren't, there weren't that many. It's part of the reason why at the, from the beginning, I went after people in debates, because I, I knew that often, often if you say something articulate, it gets ignored. If you say something like, oh, global warming is a hoax, then everyone wants to jump on that <laughs> yeah. and and uh, ridicule you or, or you just, yeah. So that's, it's not shocking. But I think what does happen though is, is at a certain point, they can't ignore it. Like even Snopes felt compelled to say something um, about it. So I'm curious, 
in terms of just keeping this kind of thing going, what response have you gotten from uh, other executives? And I'm curious if anyone has said that you've influenced them to do more. Uh, no, I don't, I'm not, I've not gotten that feedback. I've gotten a lot of feedback from folks um, generally saying, hey, thanks for saying something. Thanks for standing up for our industry and the people and, and what we do. I've gotten a couple of notes from uh, executives at um, other, let's say, larger oil field service or energy businesses who, uh, in fact, two, if not three folks have reached out to me to say, hey, I really wanted to say something to support your letter, but I didn't feel like I could because of who I work for. And they don't work for, you know, they don't work for a, they work for oil and gas companies. And this was their view, is that they generally agreed with what I said, but they didn't feel the authority to say it in a public forum, which I found shocking and part of the inherent problem that our industry has. Yeah, also, you might not be surprised I've had this experience as well, where people would just say, I mean, it's shocking. It's not, maybe not shocking, but people say to me all the time, you wouldn't believe how many people say behind the scenes, oh yeah, I agree with you a lot, but I can't say it. Nobody's ever said to me, oh, I disagree with you, but I'm afraid to say it. So it's always, when you yeah. have these kinds of views, you know that there are all these people who agree, but feel like they can't get by if they say they agree. Which, which is shocking to me. I guess the one thing, again, one thing that I just am surprised by is that generally I feel like people behave in ways that are you know, aligned with their incentives, um, sometimes to their detriment. But in this case, it just strikes me as weird that people, a lot of leaders within the industry are behaving in a way that is, does not align with their, I think the incentive of their industry, much less the, you know, what's good and right for all of humanity. And that's, I think just atypical. I, I just would expect to see more folks who are heavily invested in the industry to celebrate the good of the industry rather than apologize. And I don't, I don't think I can really, I haven't been able to understand or articulate why that's the case. Oh, well, let's talk about that because I think it's pretty <laughs> straightforward. I mean, so you mentioned incentives. I mean, you talked about the good of humanity. So that's something that's a pretty abstract kind of thing. And then even the good of, of industry. I mean, let's say that you, now I think ultimately people over, dramatically overestimate the negative price to pay and they underestimate uh, the positive that they can get. But I think a huge amount of it is that is the fear of near-term social disapproval. Like social disapproval, status is such a strong motivator for human yeah. beings and social disapproval is a huge thing I mean, people don't like it when they don't get it, but they also fear uh, the hell out of it. I mean, if you take my, one of my more extreme things, which is going, I don't know if you've seen these videos, but going out in the middle of New York City and there's a march of 100,000 or more people and I'm holding an I love fossil fuel sign and I'm talking to them about why fossil fuels are good. Like, okay, you might say, okay, you might be afraid for your life, right? You might get, and so it helps like I do self-defense stuff and I feel, and but I'm in New York City, like really is somebody gonna kill me in the middle of the, I mean, maybe now, but not in 2014 <laughs> yeah. when I was doing it. Um, so really it just means the real fear there is a bunch of people are gonna say you're a bad person. And, and I think it's hard to overstate how much that bothers people. So I'm, there's other layers to it, but, but I, I think that that explains a lot because just one more thing and then I wanna hear your take particularly when you're dealing with people who are independently wealthy, uh, which I certainly was not and I still am not in the sense that you would need to be like, I don't have enough cash to just not work for the rest of my life. I know a lot of people 
who have plenty of cash to work for the rest of their lives. And so they have no excuse for caring. They, they have no excuse of, oh, I'm going to run out of money if mm -hmm. I say this. And so then really, what is your excuse for not saying the right thing? Is it like, oh, you want to do this job, but you don't want, you want to make money, like more money, but you don't want to, you don't feel free to say what's right. Like one of the great things about making any money is you get to do what you want, is you have that, that freedom. So this just reinforces to me how it's not existential to them. It's more existential to their status and to their approval from others. So what do you think about that? Well, no, there's a, there's a lot there. I think you're right. I, 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 part of it that, that really resonates with me is we do an important incentive for folks is to be, um, what's the, the expression we want to be, we want to be lovely. And, and um, I forget the exact uh, uh, expression, but I think that is a huge part of human motivation is to have others um, uh, love us and, and view us positively. Um, and so I think you're probably absolutely correct. Is, and, and heck, in fairness, part of, I, I wrote this note, I get like all positive reinforcement. So I like that and I feel good about that. It might feel very differently if everybody that I worked with or engaged with had a really negative view. In some ways, it's easy for me to take this view, I guess, is my view, or is my thought a lot of people said is this, this has been a courageous stand to take, but in my view, it's like, no, it's actually not particularly courageous. I'm an oil and gas guy, I'm a petroleum engineer. I, I, I think it's just me stating the obvious and what I've, um, restating what I have uh, acted for the last 20 plus years that I think what we do is good for people. Um, but anyway, getting back to your point, I think it's right that, that people want the respect and kind words of others and to the extent our society has evolved to the point where everybody views fossil fuels as bad. And if you say fossil fuels are bad, then that gets you know reinforced with positive, um, positive words thrown at you. That that probably is a pretty strong motivator for a lot of people. Well, but you said what I like your point about how it doesn't actually take this much courage, which is my own view as well of myself. Like I don't experience stuff that I do as as very courageous. Like the stuff I'm actually proud of is just working very hard to do difficult things. So I just think of it as it's difficult to think through issues. It's difficult to write about them. It's difficult to work on a book for two, like it's difficult to persist. And I'm sure it's the yeah. same in business, but it's not difficult to me if I believe something 100% to say it. Like I'm not in communist Russia. Right. It's not like I'm not gonna, and, it's a, and part of what people don't realize is when you say these things, if you speak the truth as you see it very clearly, there will be all sorts of people who's who will approve of you, and and that'll be a lot more meaningful. Insofar as it and it shouldn't mean that much, but insofar as it as it it can be meaningful, it'll mean something to you that they actually they a, a would approve of you when they wouldn't otherwise because they wouldn't notice you, and then b they're approving of you for something that you uh, approve of yourself. And then the the negative stuff, if you, well, yeah, the negative stuff. I think that's a lot of it is just how people take it because it. My experience, people always say to me, oh, you must get so much hate mail. I'm like, I don't get enough. I wish I got more because that would just mean I was more influential. But I don't, like, I see a tweet about myself that's negative. I, my only question is, is this true? Like, did they make a true point? Not, oh, there, that means uh, so much. So I think that it is, just to summarize what I, what I think you are getting at, is that there's a huge positive that you get from saying these things. And the neg and you get a lot of respect, and the negative is very overblown. It's kind of like when somebody's not the same, but they're like they're afraid of public speaking, and they think, "Oh my God, the audience is going to hate me," et cetera, et cetera. Like, no, it's not that bad. None of these things that can happen in terms of people's disapproval are really bad. And there's all sorts of really good stuff that happens when you are 
when you actually just say what you think and, and do it clearly. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, one more dimension that what you said raised to me is just the, you said something like you were just stating what you've acted on for 20 years. And my guess is that just based on the clarity of your letter and what you said that a lot of what leads you to do this is just you feel pretty clear on the issues yourself. And I think one thing that happens with people in industry is they haven't independently thought through all the issues. So they're not totally clear that they're in the right. I mean, they're clear that the other side is wrong in some way. But for example, many don't think critically about the issue of climate. Like they, it might just be like, oh, it's a hoax or oh, I, or it's real, but they haven't right. thought of it in an integrated and precise way where they're really thinking, okay, what is this and how do I end? And so when you, when you don't have that clarity, then I think you're really reticent to say something in part because you don't know how you're gonna follow up with what someone else says versus if you really think you're right and it would hold up to scrutiny, then I think it's, it, it's very, if you feel very compelled to speak up. It's almost the opposite of reticence. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. And I think climate um, change is certainly one of those topics where I, I still argue I've not done enough research, but it, it seems to be you either fall into the crowd of you believe every, or I would say that the conventional wisdom out there is either you believe in it or you're a denier. And it's like, well, that's a, just a terrible, terrible frame any argument, I would say. Um, but I think, again, a point that I think you made very well in, uh, in your book, and I've seen some others uh, argue uh, that really resonates with me is, hey, humanity's pretty remarkable over the last 150 years of finding ways to adapt to our environment. And I don't know that we can predict what's going to happen over the next 100, 200 years and lots of different things. Certainly with the environment is probably one we're not going to be very good at predicting how it's going to change. But I'm pretty confident that we as humans are pretty ingenious and will um, be able to leverage our technological capability to make the environment a better place for us. And every single point of data, at least measured with how human life has improved over the last 150 years, supports the idea that we've gotten a lot better over this time period, largely through the access of low cost and reliable energy. And if we just throw that away, that's gonna be a huge problem for humanity in a way that I think is just totally underappreciated. So I think everybody also thinks that, well, it's free to, just go away from uh, oil and gas in a way that it's just crazy to me. I don't know why people, I, I, that is another thing I can't understand why people don't have any, any um, oh, appreciation for the, just some of the obvious issues like the fact the intermittency problem with, with solar and wind has not been solved yet. And the fact that people can't just undement or recognize certain basic logic in the arguments is peculiar. I mean, my, my view on that is, you know, we've really been trained to think of energy issues in particular with this minimal impact or anti-impact focus. And even when we define what we want out of energy, it's like green energy or renewable energy. It's all about what the energy doesn't do. It's not about what the energy does do. And my favorite example of just how little we're concerned with the value of energy to human life is the energy poverty example. There are 3 billion people who have virtually no energy and nobody cares. And right. yet we have headlines and headlines about how like some polar bear that we'll never see got disrupted in some way. And like uh, polar bear is actually my favorite animal. I always like to say, it. but I mean, like 3 billion people are suffering from this lack of a basic human need. And again, we don't, and, and so when we think of energy, like we think more of a polar bear has to move from one piece of ice to another 
then 3 billion people lack this. It just shows how well, how good a job people have done at framing this issue in a way that's not focused on human flourishing as the standard by which we're evaluating our different options. It's all about minimizing our, our impact. You can see that even with the Michael Moore so-called documentary of, I don't know if you've seen Planet of the Humans, you've probably at least no, heard I'm of it. I'm familiar with it, but yeah. Not yeah, so he's, I mean, what his basic point is like green energy, my basic point about green energy isn't, re isn't really energy. And his point about green energy isn't, isn't really green, which is also true. It, okay, right. it has these massive, but his, his whole thing not is- the most okay, important we should, point, but it's- We shouldn't use any energy. Yeah, like we just need to dehumanize the, um, the play. But it's really remarkable how just, like how the thinking has been oriented so that we just, people just reflexively think about energy in terms of we have to stop impacting things and they don't think about the value of it. And so if you don't think about the value of it, then you're not gonna think that much about the achievement of what makes it possible. Cause your whole thing is like, let's the whole, like we, you talked about ESG, which I wanna ask about, like the whole thing of our goal in energy is to decarbonize by 2050, like at any cost. It's not our goal is to empower the world so that billions of people can live a modern life. Our goal is just decarbonize, which, I mean, you could achieve that through a number of very inhumane things like genocide and you know using primitive biomass and stuff. So it just shows that in even the companies like BP, Shell, like they'll say, yeah, our goal is to decarbonize. Like that is, that just shows our goal is to do nothing to nature. So it's, to me, if, if that's your goal, yeah. Why, why would you be focused on the nuances of how to produce energy for 9 billion people if that's not your focus? Yeah, I think there's one topic you I've heard you talk about a number of times, which, which also I, um, resonates with me, which is the fact that a lot of people have this religious view, for lack of a better word, on the fact that you can't change the, anything that humans do to change is inherently bad um, because the, the, the planet was perfect before humans came along and started changing things. And I, I think, I don't, I don't know how to change that, I guess. When people start having this religious view of things, it can be very difficult to actually argue um, logically against that. I find that just even naming it is very helpful because most people don't realize they're operating on it. Like I had a guest recently who was the opposite of this, Sean Steffi. He's a, a union guy out of Pennsylvania, and he he was prominent for a little while for criticizing Biden about some stuff. But he said something like, hey, what are we shooting for with climate? Like, what's the perfect climate? And that's a good kind of question, recognizing, okay, the, the planet isn't perfect. The climate isn't perfect. There's no reason to think, oh, the exact climate we inherited or the exact global climate system. Like, if, if it's not that, everything's going to be terrible. And so I think most people just they have this idea of that nature is a delicate nurture or nature is a perfect planet, but it's not made explicit and there's not an alternative. That's why often with these things, what I try to do is name them and then give a counter name. So I'll talk about, okay, you can have the delicate nurture view of earth or the wild potential view of earth. And the wild potential view of earth says we actually need to impact earth a lot to make it uh, a livable place. And I find that it, it switches people pretty quickly because you cannot believe the delicate nurture view if you think about it, but you can believe it if it's just implicit. Yeah, I think that's, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, like 5,000 years ago, yeah, people believed in, you know, the sun god and all these things. And like, if you dance, it's going to rain. Like, no, people, people know the world has cause and effect and, and 
they, particularly if you come from a lot of oil and gas, people have geology knowledge, which is really useful. Just what the earth used to be like, how much CO2 there was, no ice anywhere for, for forever. Um, the more people have this perspective on the earth that it's not this delicate nurture or perfect planet, uh, then they become less afraid of like some catastrophic side effect of anything we do. And then they actually become afraid of not using a lot of energy to improve our lives on earth. Cause they know that if we don't do something like that, then life is going to suck. Yeah. I think that's pretty, pretty clear that life would suck without uh, hydrocarbons. Um, so what are your future plans in terms of uh, activism now that you've had this breakout success? Well, I, I don't know. I've, I've only done one social media post in my life. I don't know that I can do a second one because I don't know that it'll have the same traction. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's, that's an excellent question. I, I haven't really, um, I guess, made any definitive uh, thoughts on that. I, I, there's a couple other topics that I think I'd, I'd probably want to expound upon um, around the energy poverty issue, around the... Um, Know, the, again, the unique benefit of hydrocarbons relative to other power sources. So there's a few other topics that I've thought about expanding on. Um, I do worry, like the, the one part about this story, I think that caught traction and resonated is people people kind of align with the us versus them sort of thing. Um, and I think that's the unfortunately part of why this got so much traction that it wasn't just right. If I just wrote a fluff piece on, hey, this is why I think oil and gas is good, that'd have been fine and a few people would have read it. But I think it's the, oh, it's us against everyone else out there is part of why it caused so much traction. Um, and I think that I don't, you know, that, that just is what it is. So I'm not sure that I have this compelling a storyline um, to have the same kind of a, a response, but these, I, I definitely think I'll um, follow it up with a couple other um, topics. So who's the them in this case? Is it North Face or is it something broader? Well, I think it's North Face is the represents, uh, representation of something broader, which is the, the general um, anti-oil and gas environmentalist movement that I think most of us feel is, is slowly um, uh, closing in around us and around our industry. One final topic I wanted to ask you about is, is ESG. So you mentioned ESG and for the uninitiated, unfortunately, everyone in the oil and gas industry now knows what this is, but not all my listeners are from there. So environment uh, environmental social governance, which is sort of a code word for sustainability, which uh, this is my interpretation. I'm not ascribing this to anyone else, but it's a code word for sustainability, which in the context of energy is in the, is code for uh, anti-hydrocarbon. So this has been a massive movement. You mentioned it. So I'm just curious if what thoughts you have about it and how, how you're uh, dealing with it. Yeah. So I think, um, if, if what, it, what it really is code for is reducing CO2 emissions, uh, among other things, and in, in that dimension, um, I struggle with it. I think in other things, if you break it down and say, hey, do we believe in creating a better environment, um, having positive um, societal benefits, and positive governance? The answer is, yeah, absolutely. Those are all positive things. Those are things that we should work towards, and I think our industry does, and certainly um, Innovex does. On the environmental standpoint, most folks who work at, at Innovex or across oil and gas industry got into it because they, at least in part, because they love the outdoors. And this is the job where um, you get to work in the outdoors and people apparently are drawn to protect their environment. So I think that the industry has done a lot of good over the last hundred years, um, addressing a lot of the challenges and environmental impacts that come from the industry. Um, further, I think that there is good that can come from burning, clean burning natural gas versus um, solid fuels, wood, done things like this that are very evident for why our country is such clean, the United States has such clean um, 
skies relative to places like China and India that burn much dirtier fuels. So I think there's a lot of good we can do in the environmental side. When you look at the societal side, um, we create great jobs for our people. Uh, the benefits of the shale expansion over the last 10 years has been numerous, both within the oil and gas business and the petrochemicals business and in any kind of downstream industry that depends on heavily on low cost energy. Those things are now advantaged in the U.S. because of the prevalence of shale gas, low cost energy in general. And then when you look at governance, this is an issue that they is, is critical to all companies where there should be strong governance. And I think that's an area where many companies um, struggle with that right balance of how do you how do you have good governance from the, you know, from all the different entities that uh, have a vested interest in the success of the business. So I, I don't have a inherently have an issue with any of those three components of ESG. Um, and we can talk about each of them in certain ways, but to the extent it is a it, what the people are really saying is, well, we want to move away from fossil fuels good because of carbon. Um, to me, that's clearly problematic. Yeah, well, it's also interesting that it's it's there's a big anti-nuclear element to it as well as there is to the anti-fossil fuel movement. And so, and one way to think of it is, the ESG movement is it's it's the best part of it, I think, is a focus on long-term value creation and saying, hey, you need to do certain things in governance in terms of how you think about your environment, how you think of social things. But they, they've they taken a particular set of views on all of those things and equated that with concern with long-term value creation. And I think on many of those issues, they're just wrong, including the hydrocarbon issue and the nuclear issue. So their, their view of what it means to be concerned about environment long-term is to be anti-fossil fuels uh, and anti-nuclear and to just have what I call these unreliable. So it's, it's, it's really a coup that they've had that says that, hey, anyone who's thinking more broadly and long range about their company, that means believing what we believe. And it's the same thing with like the different kinds of diversity policies and governance things. It's very much, oh, what Michael, you know, in, in climate, it's like what Michael Bloomberg's task force says, oh, well, that's obviously what everyone who is interested in climate uh, would say. So I think part of the danger of it for me is that it's packaging a good thing with bad things. But the goal of a lot of people pushing this, certainly in energy, is what we would consider the bad thing. Like the goal, the reason this is being pushed is not because people are caring so much about, you know, having a certain kind of social responsibility. It's because it's a, I mean, this was explicit by Bill McKibben and others. Like this is a way to get the world off hydrocarbons. Yep. I think that's right. So uh, particularly in that environment, I admire that you uh, said this uh, publicly. So any uh, any final thoughts? I, and I also yeah. have the, I would say the last thing I would say on that, though, is I do have the benefit that I think a lot of my peers that are, you know, working publicly traded businesses where they have to deal with a broader set of investors, I think they feel this pull to appeal to the ESG um, first um, crowd, let's say. Uh, I, I'm certainly benefit from the fact that we're owned by a private equity group that is very, um, you know, very realistic and is an oil and gas focused in many ways private equity group that understands a lot of these issues uh, pretty well. So I'm not pulled in the same number of different directions as some other folks that might work at much larger, uh, more you know, publicly traded oil and gas businesses. All right, that's a, that's a good qualification. Although I would tell people. Check out Chris Wright of Liberty Oilfield Services because yes. that is a public company. And Chris, Chris and I have yeah. debated on the same team before. And he's, you know, he's sort of almost uniquely knowledgeable about these things from the perspective of an oil and gas uh, CEO. But you know, he's great at just saying publicly uh, what he thinks 
and you know having a lot of conviction. So I think he, no, he and you are showing it can be done. Yeah, very good point. Now Chris is very impressive and has has very uh, yeah much much more thoughtful on these topics than I am. Well, we don't need to compare you, but both both of you, I wish, would be more uh, emulated. So, just final question: any any final thoughts for our listeners, including any information they should have about how to learn more about you and your burgeoning public commentary? Uh, so, so I think the um, obviously we'd encourage folks to go to our, our website, innovex-inc.com. You can learn more about the business and what we do, um, and certainly on on our. Uh, LinkedIn side, as well as my um, LinkedIn side, happy to have folks go there and, and follow the different things that we're going to post and say about these topics uh, over the coming time, over the coming year or so. All right. Innovex, so I-N-N-O-V-E-X. Yes. Uh, hyphen Inc.com. Yep. Yeah, we couldn't get just the Innovex.com uh, website. Somebody else has that. Yeah, you got to, you got to pay them a a fortune. There's all these great yeah. stories in Silicon Valley, like the, the Dropbox people, I believe the people who sold them the site took cash. And it, I, I think they said it would be worth at least hundreds of millions of dollars now. <laughs> but yeah, now that you're famous, nobody's going to sell yeah. that site for cheap. <laughs> so innovexinc.com. All right, Adam, thanks so much for what you've been doing and thanks for coming on the show. Great. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Adam Anderson for joining me. It was exciting to have him. That, that letter, you should definitely read the letter. Um, I'm sure if you go to innovexinc.com, innovex-inc.com, I'm sure it'll be there. Otherwise, uh, look, look, it'll be in a bunch of different places. So definitely check out that letter. One thing that was notable about, about it that I've mentioned in my newsletter, by the way, subscribe to the newsletter at alexepsteinlist.com is that he really addresses the issue of climate head on and makes some of the points about using energy to take a naturally dangerous climate and to make it unnaturally safe. That's often something people shy away from, but I think his letter illustrates that when you do that well, it's such a powerful argument and you really alleviate people's number one concern about fossil fuel use going forward. So definitely recommend checking out that letter. I hope Adam is an inspiration to others and that leads me to a couple of resources that you can use to learn more. I mentioned alexepsteinlist.com, so make sure to get on my mailing list. I've also been talking a lot lately about energytalkingpoints.com, where you can get a lot of uh, free, powerful, concise, well-referenced talking points on all sorts of different issues. And if you are an elected official or staff member in the US House, US Senate, or governor's office, you can join my messaging group, Energy Talking Points On Demand. So energytalkingpointsondemand.com, you can sign up there. You just have to verify what office you work for. And that we've been meeting Mondays. It's been super valuable. We have a lot of, uh, a bunch of different officials on the call, a lot of staffers on the call. And I think it's gonna make a really big difference in the coming year giving pro-freedom, pro-energy people much, much better messaging and ultimately much better policy ideas. So excited about that. Again, if you know anyone who qualifies, go to energytalkingpointsondemand.com. Otherwise, just go to energytalkingpoints.com. Let's see, anything else? This is the second to last episode of the year. Next week, we're going to have on a really interesting guest talking about the future of energy and particularly the future of the international oil market. I haven't had anyone on in a long time to talk about that, so I'm looking forward 
uh, to that. I, I need to learn how to pronounce the guest's name, so I won't try to pronounce it now. So you, I guess you can, if you can think of difficult to pronounce names that know a lot about the subject, maybe you can guess who our next guest is. But I assure you by next week, I will be able to uh, pronounce his name. Let's see what else. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at, let's try that again. Email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Also, if you like the work that we do at the Center for Industrial Progress, you can become an accelerator and your accelerator contributions go directly to our research and development efforts and our promotional efforts. This year has been a massive one in terms of research and development. The accelerator contributions have helped a ton. It's helped me bring along my book to near completion. It's helped with a lot of the basic research that went into energytalkingpoints.com. And if you've been following my work, I hope you agree it's gotten way better in the last year and the accelerators are a large part of the reason why. So you can become an accelerator at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. All right, that is it for this week. Make sure again to check out Adam Anderson's uh, public note to North Face, maybe let North Face know in a very uh, articulate, polite, but forceful way how you feel. And let's keep being champions. Adam and others are showing that it can work. You speak the truth clearly, you can make a big difference. So let's keep doing that. All right. That's it for this week. Until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.